This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Avalanche. It probably hit you like a bolt from the blue when we at the Word of the Week suddenly started talking about lightning in last week's episode. After all, we laid into that episode with a discussion of mountains and how mountains are usually presented as passive obstacles rather than active killers in fantasy media. Well, it caught us by surprise, too. Especially those of us who simply read and produce whatever script we're sent. We felt like we were on stable footing with that whole mountain thing before we turned up the stories of hikers who had been struck by lightning while hiding in caves and the dangers that storms present to mountain climbers in general. It's like the ground just sort of fell out from under us and we found ourselves falling out of control until we were buried in piles of research about lightning strikes and Hindu gods. It was kind of like an avalanche. Which is what we meant to discuss before we got struck by the absurdity of being killed by lightning inside a cave. But enough about that. Let's talk about avalanches. Now, when you picture the tallest of mountains, you generally picture them as covered with a little white tippy top of snow. It's such an ubiquitous image that kids even draw them that way. A gray, rocky cone topped with a little white triangle. Like a knit snow cap made of snow. And the reason you picture them that way is that the tallest mountains are always covered with snow. And that's because the peaks of the mountains are usually covered with snow. Permanently. You picture them that way because that's how they are. Surprise! It has to do with something called the snow line, or rather, the climactic snow line. You might remember back in our series about biomes, and we forgive you if you don't, that was a long time ago. You might remember from our series on biomes that what with things like the tilt of the Earth's axis and the angle with which the Earth's surface was facing the sun and the rotation of the Earth and all of that stuff, the climate of a region tends to vary with its latitude. That is, the big overall seasonal weather patterns of a place depend heavily on how far it is from the equator. Near the equator, such weather patterns tend to be uniform. There isn't much seasonal variation. And it tends to be warm because of all that nice direct incoming solar radiation. Meanwhile, go farther to the north or the south, and you'll find climates tend to be more variable for a while. And then they get less variable again. And they stay uniformly cold because the incoming solar radiation tends to come in at some pretty oblique angles and loses a lot of heat to the atmosphere as it does so. And of course, the presence of large bodies of water and the direction of prevailing winds also affect a region's climate. But there's another side to all of this. Because of the thinness of the air, the availability of moisture and prevailing winds, the higher up you go above the ground, the colder and more uniform the climate gets. And interestingly enough, if you climb the side of a particularly tall mountain, you'll notice the climate pretty much changing the same way as it would if you traveled north from the equator toward the North Pole. Consider, for example, the alpine tree line. As we discussed in our episode about the taiga, 
the one in which we also discussed lemmings. Regions with cold climates, long winters, and short summers couldn't really sustain anything but the hardiest of pine trees. Needled trees. Evergreen trees. Conifers. And if you went farther north than that, you'd find no trees at all. The latitudes beyond which you won't find any more trees because the prevailing climates are called the Arctic and Antarctic tree lines. They aren't just specific latitudes, though. Because of prevailing winds in the presence of water and other factors, the actual latitude varies from place to place, but there is a wiggly little line around the top and bottom of the earth beyond which trees can't live. And likewise, around the sides of mountains, there are lines above which only coniferous trees will grow. And even higher up, lines above which no trees will grow at all. And that's called the alpine tree line. And that word, by the way, alpine, comes from the Latin alpus, which was the Latin name for a range of mountains in Central Europe you may have heard of. The Alps? As to why they were called the Alps, well, we're not precisely sure. There are a few theories, though. The two most prominent is that the name Alpes may have been a mutation of the Latin word altus, which means high and from which we get the word altitude. Alternatively, it might have come from the word albus, which means white, and from which we get the name for the white of an egg, albumen, and the name of a white-bearded wizard, Albus Dumbledore. Regardless, the word alpine can either mean coming from the Alps mountain range or having to do with any high mountain range at all, hence the alpine tree line, or alpine timber line is the line on the side of the mountain above which trees won't grow. And that line is a pretty hard limit, harder than you might think. It's enough to twist the heck out of whichever trees try to grow beyond it, or even grow right on the edge. And that's where we get flag trees and Krumholtz trees. Krumholtz trees, which come from a German phrase meaning bent wood, are trees whose exposure to sustained freezing winds have caused them to bend and twist and grow into unusual shapes, away from the freezing winds. And those sorts of trees can be found right on the edge of the alpine tree line as the freezing winds on the other side of the tree line force them to grow away. Banner trees and flag trees are a particular variation of Krumholtz trees whose branches have all been forced to grow in one direction by the same sorts of winds. They look like trees which only have branches on one side, like pennants or banners or flags. But above the alpine tree line is another line a height at which the climate is so uniformly cold throughout the entire year that the snow never melts, and the surface of the mountain is covered with a permanent coating of snow. But unlike the mountains and children's drawings, such peaks and ridges aren't merely covered in a powder dusting of snow. No, things are much more complex. There are usually layers upon layers of snowpack. Now, as new layers of snow fall on the old, the weight of the new snow tends to force the old layers of snow to melt and freeze together a bit. So while you have stratified layers of hardened snowpack, those layers tend to be tightly bonded together. Usually. And that brings us around to avalanches. An avalanche is a mass of snow, ice, and rock that cascades down the side of a mountain. And every year, avalanches claim the lives of one to two hundred people worldwide. That may not seem like much, but you have to remember 
that most people don't live, work, or play atop snow-covered mountains. Which is why it is usually outdoor winter sportsmen who get killed by avalanches. More chillingly, however, is the fact that 90% of worldwide avalanche incidents that injure or kill people are triggered by the person who they ultimately kill, or someone in their party. Now, despite the fact we spent a lot of time talking about that snow line thing, not every avalanche happens above the snow line. In fact, an avalanche can happen on the side of any mountain as long as there's enough snow. In fact, most avalanches are just slides of dry, powdery snow that roll down the mountain in a sort of formless mass. Those are called sloughs. And they don't do too much damage. Then there's snow slab avalanches. Those occur when a layer or strata of frozen snowpack breaks free from the mountain, or the layers of snowpack underneath race down the mountain. As the mass of frozen snowpack rockets down the mountain at speeds of up to 80 miles per hour, the snowpack shatters and breaks like snow. And the avalanche will erase everything in its path. Snowboards, mountain climbers, trees, forests, even entire villages. Consider the story of Plurs, Switzerland. That's what the village was called then. Today, it's called Piero, and today it's a completely different village. That's because in September of 1618, Plurs, Switzerland was wiped off the map by a slab avalanche. Of the 2,500 or so inhabitants of the village, four survived. Yes, four. Not 400, not even 40. Four. Four people survived. And those four people survived because they were traveling at the time, and they were nowhere near the village. And if you want an even bigger number, how about we multiply that by 20,000? That's the number of soldiers that were buried alive in an alpine avalanche during one of the most famous mountain crossings in the whole of Western history. And that story... The story of Hannibal crossing a mass of uncrossable mountains with over 100,000 soldiers and, famously, a pack of war elephants, is actually just one of a series of dramatic moments in one of the most significant historical events of the ancient world. It was actually the event that determined which empire would rule Europe for centuries to come. The Punic Wars. On one side, you had the Phoenician state of Carthage, which gained independence from Phoenicia, it became a major trade and naval power in northern Africa, known as the Carthaginian Empire. And on the other side, an up-and-coming but militarily very promising empire called Rome. We're going to assume, based on the fact that we talk a lot about how many of our English words come from Latin, and how the entire Middle Ages grew out of Rome, and how the Holy Roman Empire dominated the political scene for a few hundred years, starting around 1000 CE, that you can guess which empire won back in roughly 200 BCE. Now, the Romans called these conflicts the Punic Wars because the Carthaginians were actually ethnic descendants of the Phoenicians. Punic just means having to do with Phoenicians. See? And to understand why Hannibal decided to march 100,000 of his best soldiers in the world across a bunch of uncrossable mountains, getting 20,000 of them killed in an avalanche and another 40,000 dead through starvation and exposure, you have to understand that Hannibal's dad had issues. See, 
all started with the First Punic War, which was a pretty massive conflict that started for a pretty stupid reason. It started when a group of Italian mercenaries called the Mamertines of Messina, who had worked for Carthage, got into a little argument with Hero II of Syracuse over who was actually in charge of Sicily. It was a succession thing, and it was honestly pretty petty, or it would have been if the Mamertines hadn't appealed to the Carthaginians to support them. Carthaginians supported them hard enough to occupy the heck out of Sicily, which led to the Sicilians appealing to Rome to help them unoccupy themselves. Now, Rome and Carthage had a long-standing rivalry, and the Romans inherited part of that rivalry from the Greeks. So both empires jumped at the chance to slug it out. And both empires were kind of evenly matched, in terms of not being prepared to fight each other. Now, Rome was pretty militaristic. If you've ever read Robert Heinlein's book Starship Troopers, or watched the unintentionally intentional parody film of the same name, you're probably familiar with the Roman view on the military. If you wanted to have any power in Rome, you had to serve in the army first. Service guaranteed citizenship. They loved their military, but they were still trying to figure out how to use the military anywhere outside of Italy. They had no naval power to speak of. Meanwhile, the Carthaginians had a wealthy empire based on sea trade. They had ports in Spain and northern Africa and across the Mediterranean. But they didn't bother with a big army, because they figured they could buy whatever they needed, including soldiers. Hence, they relied on mercenaries to do most of their dirty work. And that meant their soldiers couldn't hold a candle to the organized, disciplined Roman soldiers and their massive legions. Basically, the Carthaginians couldn't win on land, and the Romans couldn't win on the sea. And so, the war was a huge, ugly stalemate. It was a long, slow race to see who would get tired of losing first. And the Carthaginians didn't love war nearly as much as the Romans did. So the Romans won. But only barely. The Carthaginians really just forfeited. But the result was the same. They had to retreat. And as was the standard, they had to pay a huge tribute to Rome as a result. And they had depleted their coffers fighting the war. And the loss of wealthy Sicily had been a nasty blow. And that brings us around to a Carthaginian general named Hamilcar Barca. He'd been in charge of one of the mercenary companies in Sicily, and he'd been forced to retreat even though his army was still intact. And he wasn't happy about that. He was pretty bitter toward Rome. And he was even more bitter when his soldiers' paychecks bounced because the Carthaginians were out of cash. So his mercenaries, and a whole bunch of other unpaid mercenaries too, all decided enough was enough. And they revolted in Carthage. Now, Hamilcar was a Carthagian, not a mercenary. He was loyal to his empire. And so, he was ordered to put down the rebellion. But to do so, he'd need soldiers. Mercenaries. Which he raised by promising to pay them for reals this time. And that worked inexplicably. The rebellion was quashed, and Hamilcar was left with a big bill to pay. Not to mention the fact that Carthage had a huge tribute to Rome to pay. So Hamilcar led his troops across the Mediterranean to Spain. 
Now, the Carthaginians had ports there, but their holdings were very strong. And so Hamilcar decided to strengthen their holdings there to see if there might be some money in basically ruling all of Spain, including the many silver mines there. Gosh darn it, there was. So the Barca family, led by Hamilcar, carved a Carthaginian state across Spain. And that made the Romans a little nervous, because Spain wasn't that far from Rome. According to one story, the Romans sent a delegation to Carthage to ask about the military buildup in Spain, and the Carthaginians replied by explaining that they were just gathering the silver they needed to pay Rome their tribute. And the Romans kind of had to suck that one up. But Hamilcar never forgave Rome for humiliating him during the First Punic War. And he made his young son, Hannibal, swear an oath that Hannibal would never forgive Rome either. And then Hamilcar died fighting some Celts. And Hamilcar's son-in-law died of adult-onset assassination while meeting with a Roman delegation. And so Hannibal took control of his father's armies and announced he was going to finish what his father had always intended. Conquer the rest of Spain and then take down Rome. A few years later, after consolidating his power, Hannibal's spies reported there was some turmoil in the Roman Senate. They were dealing with unrest in the north of Italy and a complicated division in military leadership. But we can't go into all that, it's complicated stuff. The point is, if Hannibal could somehow strike into Roman land from the north, he'd have allies and support and he could bypass the Roman navy, which had grown much more powerful after having amazingly learned something during the First Punic War. And he could do it while the Roman leadership was paralyzed with political infighting. There was just one thing in the way. A 200-mile-wide, 15,000-foot-high range of forbidding frozen mountains. And he got his soldiers across them. Well, 20% of his soldiers anyway. And he was able to recruit a bunch more people who were unhappy with Rome on the other side. And Hannibal's army proceeded to wreck Rome's stuff for two years. The best the Romans could do for a long time was delay and harass Hannibal's army. That was the tactic of the Roman general Fabius, and it led to the term Fabian strategy, which refers to avoiding a direct conflict and engaging in a long war of attrition with a superior foe. The Romans hated it, by the way, but it did ultimately work out. Hannibal was unable to take Rome itself. Meanwhile, the Romans pushed into Spain and ultimately were about to attack Carthage. And after literally 15 years of Hannibal marching around Italy, making the Romans miserable and Fabius chasing him around, nipping at his heels, Hannibal was forced to give up because he had to go home and defend Carthage from the Romans. But Hannibal was finally defeated and never made it home at the Battle of Zama in 202 BCE. And that was just the Second Punic War. Admittedly, it was the best of the three. But then the middle of the trilogy is always the best. And we definitely recommend you check out the whole story. It's an amazing melodrama starring some of the most amazing characters history had to offer. And it's full of revenge and blood oaths and dramatic turns. All that stuff. But we digress. Avalanches. 
you might be wondering what causes avalanches. And you're probably familiar with the idea that loud noises cause avalanches, as if layers upon layers of snowpack are so delicate that merely sneezing too loudly will send a whole mountainside of ice and snow barreling down at you at 80 miles per hour and wipe out any trees and towns in the way. Well, no, that's not true. Loud noises do not cause avalanches. But literally anything else can. See, what really causes an avalanche are changes. The bonds that hold the different layers of snowpack together are pretty delicate. And they can be strained to the breaking point after a heavy snow. Eventually, the heavy snow causes the underlying layers of pack to freeze together. But in the first 24 hours after a large fall of fresh snow, usually a foot or more of snow, the bonds between the underlying layers of snowpack are at their most delicate. And a weak layer can let go if something suddenly puts any more strain on it. Or it can just let go due to the weight. Sudden changes in wind, precipitation, and temperature following a heavy snowfall can touch off an avalanche. Or the weight of a single person or a small group or say, 20,000 soldiers and elephants. And that's why 90% of fatal avalanches are started by the person they kill. It's that change in weight at just the wrong time that can suddenly cause a whole slab of snowpack to slide down the mountain. And if you're on that slab, or below it, what can you do? Not much, honestly. Skiers and snowboarders can sometimes gain enough speed to get ahead of the slab and veer out of the path of the avalanche. Snowmobiles can outspeed them too, sometimes. But if you're on the slab or under it, and you don't have a way to go faster than your legs will let you go, well, you're in trouble. The problem is that you're about three times heavier than the debris in an avalanche. So if it overtakes you, you're going to sink. You're going to be buried alive. The best thing to do is grab a tree and hold on. And if you can't do that, you swim for your life. Yeah, swim against the avalanche and wait for it to stop. That way you aren't buried too deep. Because once that snow and ice settles, it's like being entombed in rock. As the slide starts to slow, try to clear space around you to breathe. And try to punch skyward. It's fairly likely that you won't know which way is skyward, and you probably won't be able to dig yourself free. But you might be found by a rescuer. And if you're lucky enough to be found within 15 minutes of being buried, your odds of survival are about 95%. Half hour later, though, your odds are down to 20%. Longer than that? Well, at least you'll be part of a legacy stretching back to one of the most decisive conflicts in Western history. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com.